Amen. Lord, that's our heart tonight, that we would know the nearness of our God. We just thank you, Lord, that we can know the creator of the universe in an intimate and a personal way, that you care about every detail of our lives, that you'd rather die than live without us because you love us so much. Lord, we're unworthy. We're blown away by your mercy. Father, we pray tonight as we go to your word that you would be our teacher. And Lord, I pray that your word would just continue to illuminate the truth of who you are. May it exhort us to be the men and women of God that you've called us to be. So Lord, we come humbly before you, desiring to know you better, because to, to know you is to love you. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. Turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 1. Continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Our church has existed for almost, it'll be six years in July, and we've gone through six books of the Old Testament. So I'm figuring it's going to be a while, but that's all right. Some of the earlier ones a little longer too, but that's okay. We're going to teach the whole counsel of God. We're not going to skip over verses. You know what? When you teach the Bible verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, book-by-book, you get it in proportion to the way God gave it to us. And so we teach all of it, all right? And as we come to Judges tonight, we're going to come to a book that we're going to see that's in stark contrast to the one we just left, Joshua. And I want to just bring you up quickly up to speed and then do a little introduction on Judges. But Genesis, of course, is the creation of God creating the universe and God creating man and and then man falling into sin. I should say choosing to sin. We like to say falling into sin. We didn't fall, we jumped. Amen? And the truth is that man chose to sin, and sin separated him from God. And we know that, that the beginning of the children of Israel through Abraham and you know, Tower of Babel and the languages being split up. And finally we get to Exodus, and they've been in bondage for 400 years due to their own rebellion against the Lord. Then they cry out to God. He brings a deliverer by the name of? That was kind of tentative. Is it Moses or not? What do you think? All right, amen. So Moses is sent by God. Moses, again, a picture, a type of the Lord. He comes and he delivers them out of bondage, but what really delivers them is Passover. Passover, the blood of the Lamb and the shape of the cross. The angel of death passed over. They were delivered out of bondage. They then went through the Red Sea, the Red Sea being a picture of water baptism. Egypt, a type of the world, delivered out of the world, baptism. And then they encamped at Sinai, Book of Leviticus. Book of Leviticus took place over a one-month period of time. I want you to take note of that because Judges takes place over 400 years. So Leviticus is one month, Judges 400 years. Now, as they said at Sinai, God delivered His word unto them. We know that while He was up on the mountain bringing the law down, Moses being a picture of the law, they fell into, they chose, jumped into sin, right? They were worshiping around the golden calf, and we know He came down, and all who came unto Him were the Levites, and so they became the priestly tribe. We then got to the book of Numbers after the sacrificial system had put in place, all of which points to Jesus Christ. A better title for the book of Numbers would be In the Wilderness. Numbers gets a bad rap. People think it's like a bunch of numbers. He numbers the people twice in the whole book. The rest of it is all about their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness that came about because of their disobedience and their unwillingness to obey God and go into the land of promise as He had called them to. So that entire generation dies in the wilderness. We come to Deuteronomy, and Moses gives the law to the next generation, preparing them to go in. 
because the, the previous generation is going to die. Deuteronomy means second giving or second law. Moses knows he's not going in, but he still passes it on to the next generation. Now, Moses dies. We get to the book of Joshua. It's handed over to Joshua, his predecessor. Joshua was one of the two faithful spies who went into the land, who came back with a good report. Joshua and lead, led them over the Jordan River. The Jordan being a picture of Holy Spirit baptism and them entering into the center of God's will and all that He had promised for them. Now once they got into the land of promise, it didn't mean that everything was going to be easy and perfect from that point on. As a matter of fact, the trials in many cases got greater, but the difference was that now they were walking with God. Guys, I'd rather face the trials of obedience than the consequences of sin any day of the week. Amen? And so they walk into the land of promise, they face fortresses in Jericho, and everywhere they went, they, saw, they won victories. There was only one time that we saw them fail, and that was when Achan took part of the spoils out of Jericho, and God said because of it, the people of Ai overran them. Now, when they repented, God gave them victory in Ai. So Joshua has really was a picture of that spirit-filled life, and we saw God giving them victory as they had crossed over into the land of promise. We need not forget there were two and a half tribes that chose not to go over. Two and a half tribes that decided to stay outside. Just camp just outside of God's highest. Man, that's a picture of so many Christians' lives today. You know what? God's highest is right there. I can see it from where I am, but I'm missing out on it. Why? Because it was just more comfortable to stay here. Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh stayed outside. God then gave them each territories within the land. They went into the land and they were each tribe was to go and take that territory. Now, Joshua had come in and won the battle, but there were still little places within their individual territories that needed to be taken care of. And this is a picture of what happens with you and I. We're born again in salvation. We're new creations in Christ. Jesus said it is finished. But guess what? We are born again. We are filled with the Spirit of the living God. But aren't there still areas of our individual lives as born again Christians that often still need to be dealt with? Now, I'm not talking about that they're not forgiven yet, or we have to work our way to heaven. Let's make that really clear. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. But there are still areas where we struggle. There are still areas where we have difficulty, and we allow things to be more important in our lives than God. And he says, go into the, I want you to go into the land there, and I want you to eradicate the territory you're in. But sadly, we saw at the end of the book of Joshua that the tribes were pretty indifferent. They're like, hey, we're in the land of promise, good enough. Got my get-out-of-hell-free card, going to heaven, good enough. You know, how much more do I need to do? As long as I get to heaven, it doesn't matter to me. But guys, you know what? May God just burn our hearts for people that are lost on this planet. May God tear us up about the people around us that are in such desperate need of Him. You know, 12 people got saved on Sunday. Isn't that great? God is good. But you know what? You know what? There's thousands more in Santa Cruz that need Jesus. Amen? And you know, in my heart, we should be burdened for every unbeliever this side of hell. And so the book of Judges is now going to record these struggles that go on as they go into the land now. Now they've got their individual territories. And you know what? It's amazing how in one generation, often in the Bible, they get so far away from God. Parents on fire for God, children outside of God's will. Some of you know that firsthand. Parents on fire for God, children outside of God's will. Here's the good news. Keep praying for them. Keep praying for them. God can restore them. God will bring the, the prodigal son home. And while the big battle was over and the land was theirs, there was still daily battles that had to be fought. 
In Judges, the children of Israel should have been fighting from victory, become disobedient and idolatrous, and are defeated time and time again because of the rebellion against God. As I said before, it's a 400-year period of time, from the time of Joshua all the way up to the time of Samuel. Judges is going to encompass 400 years. And during that time, the children of Israel are going to repeat the same cycle seven different times. You're going to think, man, there's repetition in here. But when I share the cycle with you, some of you might go, ooh, I'm familiar with that cycle. Let me read it to you, because here's what happens. We're going to see them, they start out serving God, doing well. Then they succumb to sin. Then they become enslaved by their sin. Then they become broken over their sin. And then God sends someone to miraculously deliver them from their sin. And then they start the whole process all over again. And they do it seven times in this one book. You're going to think, why do we... Why, why didn't they just make this book a seventh of the... Because it's the same thing. Because God is showing us the heart of man. The heart of man is perverse and wicked above all things. You know, man is not inherently good. Man is inherently evil, and that's why we need Jesus. Amen? Now, in Him, we can be righteous and holy, and we can walk in the center of His will, and we can know of His grace. But you know what? I don't know about you guys, but I can identify with that cycle in my life at times. How about you? Walking with the Lord, doing well, all of a sudden succumbing to sin. The temptation comes, falling for it. Then before you know it, you're enslaved to it. Then before you know it, praise God by His conviction, you're broken by it, you're miserable because of it. You cry out to God, and He restores you. Now I hope that that's not a cycle we go through every five minutes. But you know what? Sadly, we see that with the children of Israel. So Joshua emphasized them entering the land by faith and walking into what God had for them, and Judges is going to emphasize our source of enjoyment within the land. We enter in by faith, and we have enjoyment through obedience. People are going to think that's legalistic. Pastor Dave, you know, it's funny. I have people, depending on which week they come, they'll say you're all law or you're all grace. I have one week, you're all law, man. That's all you talk about, the law, man. Being holy, that's all you talk about. And they'll say, man, all you talk about is grace. It's just this cheap grace thing. Whatever the Bible says in that chapter, that's what we're going to talk about. Amen? And there are chapters that talk about walking in holiness, and there are chapters that talk about the grace of God, and they're both equally true. Amen? Where we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior, and praise God for His grace, and we're to walk in holiness. Be holy, for I am holy. That's not legalism, that's the Bible. Amen? And God wants us to walk in holiness, not because He wants us to strive to somehow earn our salvation, but because He knows walking in the center of His will will give us the greatest amount of joy we could ever experience. He's a loving Heavenly Father who wants to keep us from harm. So you and I can enter into salvation and the promise of heaven by faith, but we enjoy that fruitful walk by, by walking in faithful obedience to the Word of God. The word judges in Hebrew doesn't just mean, you know, someone with a black robe sitting on a bench with a gavel. That's not what it means at all. It's probably a bad w- word to even use. It means a ruler or a deliverer or a savior. So there are 17 judges we're going to see. And these judges are men and women who God uses to come and bring deliverance to the children of Israel when they've blown it. And it's interesting, they're all different types of people. Some of them are warriors. Warriors like Othniel, who we're going to talk about tonight. And ever heard of a guy by the name of Gideon? He's one of the judges. Well, how about 
a priest by the name of Eli or a prophet by the name of Samuel. So we have warriors, we have rulers, we have priests, and we also have prophets. When you put all those together, you know who you get? Jesus Christ. Because he is the great high priest. And he is the ultimate prophet. And he is our king of kings. Amen? And it takes 17 judges just to get a picture or a glimpse of our Savior. But he's the one that delivers all of us. A better name for the book of Judges might be the book of failure, and you're going to know why once we start going through it. But I encourage you, again, as they plunge into this 400 years of Christian, or in this case Israel, because we weren't Christians yet, dark age after the death of Joshua, know that there's lessons to be learned. Guys, we're all experiential learners. But the truth is we don't have to learn by our experiences. Amen? We can learn from somebody else's. Ooh, you touch a hot stove, you burn your hand. I saw that. Guys jump. I'm not doing that, right? And the point is that we can look at these examples and judges and say, oh, disobedience to God, not good. (laughs) Consequences, not so good. We want to honor God and we want to trust in Him. Judges 2.10 says, Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which we had done in Israel. Amazing. The next generation didn't know the Lord. It says in 21.25, this is a, a verse that most people know about Judges. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds like the book of Santa Cruz. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everybody's got his own plan, his own program. That's judges. And that's what's going to happen at the end of the 400 years. They will have learned nothing. Through the cycle, through the cycle, through the cycle. But praise God, there's things we can learn. The contrast between Joshua and Judges. In Joshua we have freedom, in Judges we have bondage. In Joshua they're growing in the Lord, in Judges they're falling away. In Joshua they have conquest through belief, in Judges they have defeat through unbelief. In Joshua it says, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. And in Judges it says, so the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, they served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. In Joshua, Israel served God. In Judges, Israel served themselves. In Joshua, Israel knew the person of God and the power of God. In Judges, Israel knew neither the person of God nor his power. In Joshua, there was very clear morality, right and wrong. In Judges, it was up to whatever man believes. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? In Joshua, it was Israel pressing onward. In Judges, it's Israel falling away. In Joshua, sin was judged, and in Judges, sin is tolerated. In Joshua, it was faith and obedience, and in Judges, it was faithlessness and disobedience. Clear contrast. It's not by chance they're next to each other in the Word of God. Because we've seen one example, and now we're going to see another one. And it should be an, an exhortation to us. So may we learn that God desires that we not only enter in by faith but that we enjoy a fruitful walk so judges one that was my overview on the book of judges real quickly give you an idea of what we're going to be looking at over the next six months or so now the first thing we're going to see is the consequence of compromise that's the title of the message if you're a note taker the consequences of compromise and we're going to see some things about compromise Israel's failure to complete the conquest God had put before them. That after Joshua's death, the children of Israel are going to start out well, as we're going to see tonight. They're going to ask the Lord, give us direction, God. Sounds really good. But having lost their earthly general, 
their God-ordained leader, Joshua, they're going to quickly turn away from God. After turning to Him first, they're going to start doing things their own way. We're going to see tonight's text and throughout the book of Judges, it's one thing to seek to know God's heart, and it's another thing to apply it to your life. It's one thing to say, I want to know God's heart, and it's another thing to take God's heart and apply it to your life. It's one thing to say, I want to know God's will, and it's another thing to say, okay, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. Not just knowing what he believes or what God says, but walking in obedience to to what he has taught us. It's another wholehearted thing to walk in obedience to him. And as we go through tonight's text, it may appear from the surface that the children of Israel are doing well. But when we take a closer look, we're going to see that the response is filled with compromise. And when we get to the end of the chapter, you're going to see that compromise is contagious. I found two things to be contagious in 20 years of being a pastor. Faith and compromise. They're both contagious. When someone's on fire for God, isn't it contagious? Doesn't it, you know, when someone gets up and starts being bold, don't you want to be more bold? It's amazing how that works. But you know what? Compromise is just as contagious. All of a sudden people say, well, I know Christians who do that, and I know Christians who do that, so it must be okay. I know a pastor who does that. Ooh, must really be okay, right? Here's the thing. Sin is never okay no matter who's doing it. It's not okay. And compromise may be contagious, but it's wrong. And we're going to also see that in each case of compromise, there is victory up to a point, but in the end, the consequences do come. Guys, God's grace is not God's permission. Sometimes we think if we haven't been smoked for something we're doing, oh, well, God didn't do anything to me yet, so it must be okay. You know, God's permissive will is not God's permission for you to continue on in your sinful behavior. Again, you can walk on train tracks for a while and not get hit. But if you stay in them long enough, a train will hit you, right? And the same is true when walking in disobedience to the Lord. We can do it for a while, and we may, again, we've always separated ourselves from God, but in the end, the consequences will come because those who the Lord loves, He disciplines. And I'm glad that He disciplines me because that means He loves me. So we're going to begin looking at those seven cycles of deteriorating faith, succumbing to being enslaved by sin, and eventually coming about to repentance. Israel's failure, we're going to see Israel's failure to complete the conquest. And as we go through the text, we'll be, indeed see God give the children of Israel victory. But we're also going to see them continue to fail. So if you take notes, here's the, here's the points of the message tonight. Consequences of compromise. God had promised to bring them victory in Canaan. All they had to do was obey. First thing we're going to see, and you may not see it this way, and that's okay. Judah is going to add to the word of God. One of the first ways we can compromise is add to the Word of God. Number two, we can follow the world's example instead of the Lord's. We can follow the world's example instead of the Lord's. We can add to the Word of God, and then we can follow the world's example instead of the Lord's. Thirdly, we can fail to finish what God has put before us. Do it halfway. God's call is to do something, do it part of the way, and then just quit. And you know what? Sadly, there's so many Christians that have done that. Started well run well, but not finished well. Then we're going to see Caleb's godly example in the middle of all of it. And praise God for Caleb. And then we're going to see another thing that can rob us. Not only adding to God's word or following the world's example or failing to finish strong, but the next thing that can also stumble us is dwelling with the people of the land. You know, getting, becoming like the people around us. I used to tell youth group all the time, you want to know the person you are, look at your friends. Because you absolutely are the people you hang out with. If you're on fire for God, people who don't love God don't want to hang out with you. 
I used to tell people all the time, well, man, my friends are all unsaved. I said, dude, just be on fire for God. You won't have to worry about it. Because they'll either get saved or they won't have nothing to do with you. And in either case, it'll take care of itself. So one of the other things that can rob us, the other, the other things that can, again, cause compromise is dwelling with the people of the land. And then lastly, as we're going to see that that compromise is indeed contagious. It's contagious. So let's begin looking at the consequences of compromise. I know it's a lengthy introduction, but it's a long book, and I wanted to give you a taste of it before we got into it. So the first three verses, Joshua adds, not Joshua, Judah adds to God's word. Now look what it says in verse 1. Now after the death of Joshua, so in this period, Israel lost its critical link between man and God. Before it was Moses, and then Moses handed his mantle to Joshua. Now remember, Moses is a type of? The law, and Joshua's name also in Greek is transliterated what? Jesus. So Moses could not bring them into the land of promise, only Joshua could, because the law cannot save us, only Jesus can. But now that Moses is no longer there, and Joshua is no longer there, so now what do they do? And you know what? They start off really well. Because look what they do. I love the fact that they begin by doing exactly what the Lord would want them to do. Certainly this would have touched and encouraged the heart of Joshua because under God's guidance they had defeated the Canaanites, they had taken the land, only the small pockets of resistance were left and again it was a time of great volatility. Why? Because their leader was gone. I find that so true today. Somebody's pastor falls and people fall away. And you know what? As a pastor you don't have no idea how much that grips my heart. At pastor's conferences we talk about that. I'll be in a room with a couple guys, I'm like, bro, I'd rather be hit by a bus than be disqualified from ministry. Not only because of being disqualified and breaking the heart of God, but how many people does the pastor stumble? You know, we're on the radio. How many thousands of people, how many people would be stumbled if Pastor Dave blew it? And I'm a sinner saved by grace, just like the rest of you. I'm one beggar leading another beggar to the bread, but God forbid that I would ever choose to do anything that would disqualify me or that would taint the name of my Savior. But the same is true for every one of us. Because your sphere of influence might be five people, 50 people, or 5,000 people, but there are people that, are know, that know that you're saved. And when that person falls away, I got a call this morning from a guy in Southern California. Their pastor just got up on Sunday and resigned. They didn't know it was coming. And the people don't know what to do. And so he calls me, and I'm, you know, I'm 500 miles away. But I gave him some godly counsel, hopefully. And, and the point is, I said, bro, is God still God at that church or what? Is the Lord going to be there next Sunday? Oh, yeah, he's going to be there. I said, okay. So you know what, bro? Why don't you get up and teach the Bible next Sunday? Why? I said, bro, I've known you 25 years. and you, Well, I don't have a Bible degree. I said, bro, I don't have one either. I don't have one either. Now you can all get up and leave now if you'd like. I don't have one either. The point is God is looking not for equipped but called because he doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Amen. He's looking for people called by God with a passion for God, with a burden. And you know what? Joshua was removed, but that doesn't mean that God's removed. Joshua is a type of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ went up into heaven, the people then had the power of the Holy Spirit and were able to go directly to the Lord because the veil had been torn. And here's the same example, because look what happens. Look at they start really well. It came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying... Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So who do they go to? The Lord. Good job, you guys. <laughs> Praise God. 
If Joshua could see from heaven, he'd be like, there it is. Somebody was listening. You know, I'm not there, and they asked God for help. That's great. Sadly, it's not going to last very long. Here we have one of the few bright spots in this entire book. They do the right thing. With Joshua gone, with no leader, they turned to the Lord. People most often get themselves into trouble because they do not seek the Lord's wisdom and direction. People come and or talk to me about things, and I'll say, have you prayed about this? Well, not really. Have you sought the Lord through the Word? No. Um, no. Why are you talking to me then? Right? Amen? Now, you want to come for counseling at the church. We're there. We want to minister to you. We want to pray for you any way that we can. But guys, why would you come talk to me when you can talk to God? Amen? Amen. Now, if, you want, if, you, if God wants to use me to minister to you, I'm here. Okay? I'm not trying to push you away. You guys know that. If you come down to our office, there's people coming in there all the time. That's why we're here. Preach the word. Love the people. That's what we're all about. And, and you know what? We want to take you to the word. If you have questions, we want to pray for you. We want to encourage you. We want to hold up your hands. But can I encourage you? You can talk to the Lord anywhere and anytime. You don't need an appointment or anything. Amen? And so they go to the Lord, and that's how they start out. But sadly, they don't remain there. It will later say in chapter 17, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did what was right in his own eyes. In chapter 21, In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. It's twice. Why? Because there was no king in Israel. They, weren't, they didn't have someone to follow the way they wanted to. Verse 2. And the Lord said, do you ever notice that when you ask God, he talks back? Now, we don't know how he spoke to them. It doesn't say. He could have spoke to them uh, through the high priest, who at the time was a man by the name of, where's my notes? Because Eliezer's not there anymore. But uh, I'll get to it in a minute. But they go to the high priest, and I believe it was probably the high priest who spoke to them because they couldn't use the Urim and the Thummim. You know what those are? They pull it out, got casting lots, and there's no way they could have got this specific that way. I believe the high priest may have spoken to him, but you know what? It could have even been God opening up the sky and talking to him. Because has he done it before? Had he done it at Mount Sinai? And they, what did they say? Don't do that anymore, right? <laughs> we can't take it, Moses, you go talk to him. And because they couldn't take it. But the point is that God, we pray God speaks. Guys, if you say you're not hearing from God, you're just not listening. Because God is speaking. And the number one way He speaks to us today is through His Word. Another way He speaks to us is through the Holy Spirit leading us. But remember this, if the Holy Spirit is leading, the Holy Spirit will always lead you the same way the Word teaches us. Amen? Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. God will speak to us through people who have the gift of teaching. God will speak to us through other believers who will encourage us. But God is speaking. And so they asked the Lord, and the Lord said... Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. Now, Phineas was the name of the high priest. It just came to me. I'm slow sometimes. Forgive your pastor. But Phineas was the one that Josephus said was probably the one who delivered the message to them. But the message came out. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. Judah shall go up. Now, we talked about this. Who led the way when they marched through the wilderness? Which tribe? Judah. Remember, if you weren't here, you get to Numbers chapter 3, 2 or 3, I can't remember which. You get in, a, in there and you see the tribes being lined up. And when you line them up, according to Scripture, they were marching in what shape through the wilderness? Cross. Cross. 
They're marching in the shape of a cross and leading them through the wilderness. In the front was Judah. Judah was carrying a banner with a lion on it. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah because he's the one that leads the way for us and he is the one that would die on the cross for us. But Judah means praise and praise leads the way. You know, why do we start off our, our service with praise? Did, did somebody just come up with that one day and think, oh, that's probably a good idea. We'd probably sing some songs. That way the late people can get there, you know. <laughs> no, that's not, why, that's not what we're doing. You know what? We enter his courts with praise, the Bible says. That's where we start. It should take precedence in our meaning. Why do we gather together? To worship him. Is he worthy to be worshipped, to be praised, and to be honored? You better believe it. And if we don't praise him when we come here, we might as well just pack it up. Because that's what it's about, is praising him. By the way, we get to heaven, no Bible. No Bible studies in heaven. We're not going to be sharing our faith because everyone's saved. Amen? But we will be worshiping. You want to get a taste of heaven? Worship. Again, I, people are going to get upset with me, but it won't be the first time. Can I encourage you? If you're showing up after worship, I don't get it. I don't get it. If the music's too loud, we'll give you some earplugs and God bless you and come anyway and sing. Amen? The point is that it should lead us into the presence of God. It should take precedence in what we do. Let's worship Him. He's worthy to be worshipped and Judah was going to lead the way. It's interesting in Acts chapter 2, what happened before 3,000 souls got saved? They worshipped. It says they spoke the what? Wonderful works of God. They were praising God. And everybody heard them in their own language. And then Peter got up after the worship and brought a message and 3,000 people got saved. There's the, there's the example for the church today. Amen? Worship first. Judah leads the way. Praise should have priority in our lives. I find that when I get, you know, I love to have praise music on in my house 24 hours a day. We have a little thing in our, in our laundry and it's just got praise music on 24 hours a day. I, I, people think I'm crazy. You come into my office, I got praise music cranked the whole time I'm there. Because it just, I love worship. And it just keeps my focus and my passion and my heart where it needs to be. Isn't it amazing? I think, we went to Calvary Chapel, Jerusalem just last week. And we walked in the door and they were cranking praise music. And I immediately I went, oh, this is good. You know what? Praise should lead the way and he says i have delivered the land into his hand god had already won the battle and he says judah it's in your hand take it so judah now watch what happens judah said to simeon his brother come up with me wait a minute what did he say in the previous verse what did he say judah shall go up does he say judah and simeon he says judah shall go up now some commentators said oh this is great because he's having some Christian fellowship to bring someone with him. I don't think so. I think that Judah wanted, thought, you know what, I, it's always better to have a little reinforcements. So Simeon, why don't you go with us, man? Come along. You know, maybe Simeon was the most yoked guy. I don't know. You know, man, you guys come with us. Because we could use your help. Guys, let's not turn to men, let's turn to the Lord. Now... Is godly fellowship a good thing? You better believe it. Is accountability a good thing? Absolutely. But in this case, I believe God wanted to show Judah, I'm on your side. You plus me is a majority. By the way, did you know that? You plus God is a majority. 10,000 people on that side, you and God on this side. You win. Amen? You're right. Ask Goliath. You plus God, majority. 
you win. Goliath, right? God's not on your side. And the point he wanted Judah to learn, trust me. Don't trust in the men around you. Don't trust in anybody else. Trust me. Put your faith in me. Put your hope in me. And so Judah says to his brother, and again, it could be a sign of cooperation, but I don't believe so. I think it's a sign of cowardice. I think it's a sign of him not just taking the word of God for what it says. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me to my allotted territory that we might fight against the Canaanites and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Again, your pastor's perspective, I believe this is compromise and the first compromise is that Judah added to the word of God. He took what God said and he added his own spin to it. Turn on Christian TV and you'll see that all day. If I hear one more person talk about seed giving, I'm going to throw up. Is that the most misinterpreted verse in the Bible like every week? And have you ever noticed how they want you to plant your seed in their garden? (laughs) If they believed in seed giving, they ought to say, the next thousand people that call, we're going to give you 10 grand apiece. Because we want to plant seed, right? But it's always, plant seed here. And the guy's wearing a $12,000 watch and a $20,000, plant your seed in my wardrobe. You know what I mean? (laughs) So misinterpreted. So much taking the word of God and adding man's spin to it. If you really have faith, you'll never be sick. That's also not biblical. It's not biblical. The Apostle Paul, did he have faith? Thorn in his flesh all of his life. You know what? God, I believe, works in greater ways through illness than delivering us from it sometimes. It's when someone is faithful in the midst of it, you go, wow, God is good. Now, can God heal? Absolutely. Does God heal? Yes. Should we pray for it? You bet. But... We need to learn it's not how much faith we have, it's based on the plan of God. So the first consequence, the first thing that we see, act of compromise, is adding to the word of God. The second thing we're going to see is Judah's going to follow the example of the world. Look at verses 4 through 7. Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites in his hand, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek in, in Bezek, and they fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Now, it's interesting. God gives them a mighty victory. He delivers the enemy into their hands. He had already told them, wherever you put the, the sole of your foot, I will give you victory. Okay? Wherever you go, you're going to win. I'm on your side. Now, Adonai Zadek, excuse me, or Adonai Bezek, you know what his name means? Lord of Lightning. You know, can you imagine? What's your name? Lord of Lightning. My brother's son of thunder. You know what I mean? I, you know, I'm Lord of Lightning. And, and, you know, the Lord of Lightning got snuffed. And the point here is that God's command was to do what? When he said, when you go into the land, what are you supposed to do to the enemy? What are you supposed to do to them? Kill them. He didn't say, take them captive. He didn't say, bring a few trophies home to show off. He said, annihilate them. Why? Because they were adulterers, they were idolaters, they were wicked, they were perverse. And he said, if you leave them around, you're going to fall into their trap. So you have to eliminate them. You don't hold on to them. So what do they do? They annihilate them? No. They're going to bring a trophy home. Look at verse 6. Then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Hard to get happy after that. Now, he was, he was truly defeated, right? He was totally defeated, right? So here's the point. 
The point was that he was rendered ineffective for battle because he couldn't hold a sword anymore and he couldn't run. But that was not God's plan. God didn't say, I want a bunch of toeless, thumbless, thumbless trophies for you to carry around and say, here's the Lord of Lightning. We've got him. He's up right here. Come, come see the Lord of Lightning. We captured him. You know who this reminds me of? Saul and Agag. You remember that? The Amalekites. He brings back the king of the flesh with him. His trophy to show off. He parades him through town. Now, where did he learn this example of cutting off toes and thumbs? Look at verse, the next verse, verse 7. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, used to gather scraps under my table. And as I have done, so God has repaid me. Now, this would be a great verse to say, you reap what you sow, and certainly that's true. But the point is, the example of doing this did not come from God, because God didn't tell him to do this. You know who decided to do this? They decided to do it. They said, you know, I hear this is the guy that cuts off toes and thumbs. Let's get him. Bring him in here and do the same thing to him. But that's not what God told him to do. In Galatians, it says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man soweth, that he shall also reap. Guys, our sin does have consequences. And some, I've seen some try to turn this around and say, This is what the Lord wanted him to do. But God had clearly told them, When you go into the land and you find your enemy, kill them. All of them. He said, Don't even leave their cattle. Don't leave anything. Wipe it all out. So is this what they're doing? No. Whose pattern are they following? The world's. We are not to hold on to our sinful temptations and attempt to render them harmless. Guys, we're not to hold on to those sinful things in our life and try to render them harmless. I thought about different things. What what areas could this apply to? Holding on to things from the past. Maybe some music. Isn't it amazing how music brings you back to something? You mean driving down the road, a song comes on, and it brings you right to where you were. Right? Why do people buy those old songs on TV? The Stop 70 Disco song. Nobody buys that because they like it. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> they buy that stuff because it makes them remember what it was like to be in high school again or something, right? But you know what? We need to get rid of stuff that would bring us back to a place that would take our eyes off of God. You know, can I encourage you? If you've got photos of your old girlfriends, burn them. Amen? Amen. I got one wife. I love her. I forget about it, right? Forget about it. It was funny. We got a, a postcard from the only other serious girlfriend I had besides my wife. And it came to my parents and my daughter saw it and she said, I don't like her. <laughs> Never met her in her life. But you know what? It doesn't matter because it's not her mom. Amen? And the point is that, you know what? If there's anything that would take our eyes off of God, anything from our past, anything that would draw us away, lose it. Don't keep it as a trophy. Well, that's the person I used to be. Yeah, there's my crack pipe collection. I just want to keep it around to remember what it was like when I used to smoke. Lose it. Amen? Get rid of that stuff. Don't hang on to your Van Halen records so you can remember what it... I used to listen to Running with the Devil, but I just keep that... You know what? Right? Lose it. And the point is, no trophies of our past. No trophies of who we used to be. You know what? We shouldn't be proud of our testimony. We should be proud of what God's done in us, but we shouldn't rejoice in the person we used to be. It ought to grieve us, the person we used to be. Amen? Not trophies to it. I was the biggest stoner who ever lived, man. You should (laughs) have. Not so much. Again, in your testimony, but don't be proud of it. Be broken by it. Amen? Broken. Don't keep trophies. So don't add to the word of God and don't follow the world's example. And now we're going to see that they don't finish the job. Look at verse 
The rest of verse 7 says, I have done so, so God repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem, and they took it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Now, this is good. This is what they were supposed to do. Now notice how the city was set on fire, though. I love types in the Bible. The city was set on fire by what? The sword. The sword is the word of God. We want to see Santa Cruz set on fire. Let's bring out the word of God. Amen? The city was set on fire by the sword. And the word of God can inflame and light this place up for Jesus Christ. And so the, they brought out the sword. They got the word out in a sense. But you know what? They would not control the city. Because we know that the city, as we're going to see later in the chapter, would remain under the rule of the Jebusites. This blows me away. They go in and conquer Jerusalem, and then they just kind of let it go. They conquer it and let it go. Conquer it, let the people stay there. Can you imagine if they had a clue what Jerusalem was all about? They had no idea what Jerusalem was to God. We have no idea what God's going to do with that one person you're witnessing to right now. We don't know if that's not the next Billy Graham. And even if they're not, even if they never share their faith with anybody, they're precious to the Lord. Amen? And the point is that they went into the city that was so, I mean, it was going to be the city of David because finally David would conquer it later. But they did not finish what God had called them to do. Now in the middle of this, we get encouraged. Because we're going to talk about one of my favorite guys in the Bible. And if you've been coming, you know who it is. Who is it? Caleb. This guy rocks. Love Caleb. If I had another Caleb, that would be the name. I love this guy. Now look what it says. We're going to see a shift here. And afterward, the children of, of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south of the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was for, formerly Kirjath Arba. And they killed Sheshai, Ahimon, and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. And the name of Debir was formerly Kirjath Sefir. Now, they won three battles there, and it looks like Judah's doing really well, but we know from Joshua 15 who fought those battles. Who was it? It was Caleb. Caleb was the only guy who was faithful all the way through and did exactly what God told him to do. Caleb was one of the two faithful spies. He was a giant killer. He was 85 years old. You guys know the story if you were here a few months back when we looked at it, that he got to the land, he was 85, and they were getting ready to hand the land out, and he ran over to Joshua and said, I get the land of the giants, God promised. He didn't say, I'm 85, give me the hammock on the Mediterranean, I'm tired. He didn't say that. He said, I want to finish strong, give me the land of the giants, and he was the one that went up and whipped these guys. And you got to love Caleb. Hebron was the ancient city of Abraham. It's the city which had... Uh, scared off the ten unfaithful spies. It was a city they went into and saw, and everybody said, oh, there's giants in the land, we can't fight them. And you know what Caleb said? Let's go get them. They're bred for us. Let's go scarf them up. God's on our side. And nobody else would do it. Now, 45 years later, he's like, my chance now. Get to see God work. And it's written in such a tense that he went up by himself. 85, climbing up a mountain, sword in hand, wiping them all out. You know what? You plus God is a majority. The word Kirjath Sefer means city of books, city of learning, probably of occult and pagan beliefs. And the word Debir means place of rest. Now this is interesting. Look at verse 12, and I love this. Then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, I will give him my daughter Aksa as wife. 
If you were here, we went through this. This is great. Because what is he doing? He's giving ministry away. Caleb says, not only did I get to see God kill giants through me, I don't want anything less than a giant killer for my daughter. So I'm, could he have killed them himself? Absolutely. So why is he doing this? He wants to give ministry away, and he wants to find a guy qualified to marry his daughter. You can't kill giants, you can get near my daughter. True that. Here's the thing. I believe, too, it was not just to inspire faith, but he was a, a dad. And you know what? If you've got a daughter, you know how special that relationship is between a father and a daughter. And while some young men may not believe it, we do want our daughters to get married. But we don't want them to marry anyone less than God's highest. When I walk my daughter down the aisle and I take her hand out of my hand and put it in that young man's hand, I'm saying I've heard from the Lord that this is the man God has for her. And I don't want to settle for anything less. And you know what? It's not always easy because your kids don't always see it. But this is his heart. He wanted a young, a, a young man who's easily scared off is not the man. He said, if, they won't fight, if he won't fight the giants, he won't stand up for my daughter. If he's not willing to come and, you know, and stand in front of the father, how is he going to defend the daughter? God's man will honor the father's wishes. He'll wait as long as it takes. He'll put his faith in the Lord to overcome any obstacle. And girls, if he won't do that, he's not God's man for you. If he starts pressuring you to do stuff apart from what your, your parents would say is good, and I believe if you're 25, you ought to live by this. I believe you're 35. If you've got a godly dad, you know what? Introduce that guy to your dad. Amen? Amen. Who loves you? Your dad does. Amen? And if a guy can't sit across the table from me, he better just keep walking. All right? (laughs) Here's the thing. If he wants to go behind her back. So he said, "You you know what? If he'll go down, he can marry my daughter. Now, guess what? Somebody does it. Look at verse 13. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, it's actually his nephew, took it so he gave him his daughter Aksa as wife so Caleb went down or Othniel went down Othniel's name means lion of God so Othniel goes down he fights the giants he wins the battle and now he gets Aksa as wife you know what Caleb's done two things he's given ministry away and he's raised up a godly husband for his daughter and guess who Othniel ends up being the first judge over Israel and he ends up Helping them overcome the, the, the first attack that's going to come in chapter 3. Othniel. How did he learn it? He learned it from his father-in-law. you got to love that example. Now notice this from his daughter, verse 14 and 15. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have given me land in the south. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. This is an example of prayer, you guys, and how it ought to work. The daughter comes to the father. Does the father want to give her the best? Of course he does. And she says, Dad, you've given me land. Will you give me water so that the land will will be well watered and things will grow? You know what that's a picture of for us? Us coming to the Father and asking for the Spirit. The Word of God, water, is a representation of the Holy Spirit, right? If we come to the Father and say, pour out your Spirit upon me, what's He going to do every time? He's going to pour out His Spirit upon us. This is a picture of prayer as the daughter comes to her Father. I know we're running on time, but we're, let's go. Where are you going, all right? 
Let's keep going. Consequences of compromise. Adding to the word of God. Following the world's example. Failing to finish. Then we see this godly example. And now we're going to see dwelling with the people in the land. Look at verse 16. Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms, that's Jericho, with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and what? Dwelt among the people. Here's another compromise. Dwelling among... Are we, we are to be in the world, but not of it. Amen? We're to minister to the world, have no fellowship with it. Bad company corrupts good morals every single time. And so we see this compromise. It's interesting that later, where they were dwelling, those people were the Amalekites. The picture of the flesh. You remember when Saul went in, he said, he told the Kenites, you better get out of here because we're wiping the Amalekites out. They were dwelling with the flesh. So Judah is faithless now to the, due to the enemy's strength. Look what happens. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zaphath, and they utterly destroyed it. So the name of that city was Hormah. Hormah means destruction. Also Judah took Gaza, that's the Gaza Strip today, with its territory. Ashkelon with its territory, Ekron with its territory. Now watch this. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. They could not drive them out because they had chariots of iron. Can God wipe out chariots? The Bible says in Psalms, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. It's interesting that when they were in the mountains, they did well, but when they went in the lowlands where the chariots are, they struggled. I find that to be a picture that when we're walking high and everything's going great in our walk with God, we do well. But how do we do in the valleys of life when the struggles come and the giants look big? Guess what? God's just as much in control in both places. Amen? He's as much control in the valley of the shadow of death as He is when we're in the green pastures. Amen? And so we see here that they're missing out because they were looking at their opposition from a worldly perspective rather than a spiritual one verse 20 and they gave hebron to caleb as moses had said then he expelled from there the three sons of anak again the giants in the land now let's finish up and the rest of the chapter is tragic look what it says here comes the the contagiousness of compromise look what happens but the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites, when it, which inherited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Guess what? They said, we're just going to camp out with the world. It's all good. God said, wipe them out. Now we'll camp out with them. How's that going to work out? We're going to find out in the next chapters. Now look at this example. This is heartbreaking. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel. Bethel means the house of? God. Beth means house. Bethlehem, house of bread. Bethel, house of God. El, God. El Shaddai, right? God. El. Bethel. So they went to the house of God, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent the men to spy out Bethel, the name of the city which was formerly Luz. Luz means separation. So the name went from separation to house of God. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. Look at this verse. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. This is so tragic. 
This guy sees the hand of God. He sees God come in and wipe out the enemy. He sees how God works in a mighty and a powerful way. He sees God show him mercy. And then he walks away from the house of God and goes to the place of separation and decides to dwell there instead. This is a picture of so many today that get to see the hand of God at work and then walk away and choose not to walk with God anyway. Last verses here. And then again, we'll just go through these quickly because it's all pretty much the same story. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshane. By the way, if you went to Israel with us, we were in this city. It was one of the greatest digs we found. It's unbelievable, the city itself. And what's interesting is this happened prior to all the debauchery that we heard about in that city. If he had just wiped it out like God said, that city would not have grown to be the wicked place that it was. But it says, He did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshane and its villages, or Tanak and its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor, and the villages or the inhabitants of Iblim, or the villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo. Megiddo is literally as wicked a city as there ever was outside of Sodom and Gomorrah. Their, their ruins are still there. They had human sacrifice, and guess what? None of that would have happened if Manasseh had obeyed God and removed them. But he let them stay, and wickedness prevailed. If we leave that stuff in our house, if we leave that stuff in our life, the wickedness will follow. Although we know in the end of Megiddo, Armageddon, 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 is where the final battle is going to take place in the Jezreel Valley, and God is ultimately going to bring the victory that Manasseh should have had there years ago. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but they did not completely drive them out. You know what they did instead of killing them? They taxed them. They said, why kill them when we get stuff from them? Why remove the sinful thing from my life when it can give me some pleasure? Why take it out of my house when I can still benefit from having it around? It's exactly what happened. Verse 29, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, so the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Again, compromise, living with the world. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants. Do you see the compromise being contagious? Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahal. So the Canaanites dwelt among them, and they were put under tribute. Again, let's tax them, keep them around, and you know what's going to happen? They're going to fall into their idolatry. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or Ahab, or Oxib, Helba, Aphek, or Rahab. So the Asherites dwell among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Guess who was from Beth Shemesh? Delilah. Or of the inhabitants of Beth Anath. But they dwelt among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath put under, were put under tribute to them. So they taxed them. Now look at this last one and we're done. And the Ammonites forced the children of Dan into the mountains. What? The Amorites were the godless ones. God was on Dan's side, and Dan was running from the Amorites. How does that happen? You take your eyes off of God. That's how that happens. You get more focus on the Amorites than on the faithfulness of God. He said, wipe them out. Everybody's compromising. And before you know it, we're running from the world instead of taking it head on. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. You know what? God has not given us a spirit of fear. Amen? Amen. Nothing to worry about. Nothing the, the worst thing the world could do to me is the best thing that could happen to me. Amen? You can't threaten me with heaven. Amen? So look what it says. 
for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Harris, in Hiajan, in Shalbim. Yet with the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. So later, when they became great enough, they didn't get rid of them, they just taxed them. Compromise is contagious. Last verse. Now the boundary of the Amorites was the ascent from Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. Guys, this is only the beginning of what we're going to see in this book, where compromise is going to lead to a walk that is fruitless, to relationships that are falling apart, and consequences that are far worse than they could ever imagine. Guys, we don't go out to destroy our marriages. We don't go out to lose our jobs. We don't go out to get thrown in the jail for, thrown in jail for drunk driving, right? We don't go out, you know what happens? We start to compromise. And then we compromise a little more, and then we compromise a little more, and before we know it, we're so far away from God, we don't know how we got there. Guys, we should not compromise. So in closing, consequences of compromise. How do we, get, how do we compromise? By adding to the Word of God. By following the world's example. By failing to finish the job God has called us to do. By dwelling with the world and by refusing to remove the enemy from the camp. And I want to encourage you. Next couple of days, pray if there's things in your house God wants you to move out. Pray about things. I don't know what they could be. Movies, music, stuff that makes you stumble. You know what, Lord? As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to honor you here. And may we be like Caleb, faithfully facing the giants when everyone else is running away. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love and your grace and your infinite mercy. And Father, I do pray as we continue to go through judges over the coming weeks and we see the examples of of the failures and, and at the same time the cycle of restoration. Lord, may we know that no matter how far away we are from you, that we can take a million steps away from God and it's only one step back. Father, may there be those who would turn back even tonight. Lord, I thank you that you ran to the prodigal son. And Lord, that we've all been prodigals at times. We've all walked away from you at times, but Lord, you desire to draw us back unto yourself. But Father, I pray we would learn not to allow compromise to seep into our lives, but Lord, we would desire to walk in holiness above all else. Because Lord, we know that what you have for us is what is best for us. And what will bring glory and honor to your name. So Lord, we love you. We praise you and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.